This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm talking about adaptations to high altitude. First, let's ask, what is high altitude? We typically define high altitude as 2,500 meters, that is 8,000 feet or higher. And that obviously covers a lot of ground. down on the bottom right, uh, you might be thinking, oh, high altitude and rugged mountaineers uh, seeking to climb to the summit of Mount Manaslu at 27,000 feet. Or you may think of athletes, such as this soccer player from, low out, from sea level who is playing at 12,000 feet in Bolivia. And those are ways in which many, many people are exposed to high altitude. The top two photos describe another type of exposure to high altitude, and that is people who have been living, who are the descendants of populations that have been resident at high altitude for thousands of years. On the right are Andean Highlander children uh, who are descended from a population that has lived there at high altitude, in this case, about 14,000 feet, for something like 14,000 years. On the left, the Tibetan woman spinning is the descendant of Tibetan populations, and there have been people living on the Tibetan plateau for 20 to 30,000 years. So you can see that the exposure and the actual altitude varies enormously when we talk about adaptations to high altitude. Why is high altitude so interesting? Well, one of the reasons it's so interesting is that there is a unique and very severe stress, and it's called hypoxia, less than the usual oxygen level. If we think of ourselves here in San Diego, think of taking a lung full of air, and you get a certain number of molecules. Let's call that 100%. As you go up in altitude, barometric pressure falls, and as we know, the molecules grow further apart, and there are fewer molecules per unit of of volume. By the time we're in Denver at 1,500 meters, or about 5,100 feet, uh, that same lungful of air has only about 80% of those oxygen molecules. At Pikes Peak, at about 14,100 feet, each lungful of air has only about 58% of the same molecules. Now, this is a severe stress, and it's a stress that's constant. It doesn't go away uh, with the seasons. It doesn't go away if you're rich or you're poor. So this makes it a good stress to study. Now, what is an adaptation, and what is hypoxia have to do with being a a stress to which we might have to adapt. Well, we need to get a sufficient number of oxygen molecules from our lungs in the ambient air. We need to exchange those with our bloodstream. We need to transport those oxygen molecules through the heart and the cardiovascular system and deliver them to our mitochondria where they are used. And our mitochondria must have those oxygen molecules. 
So what do we do when faced with a situation where, let's say, there are only 60% of the usual number of oxygen molecules? Well, something has to happen with gas exchange, gas transport, or gas use. And that something are adaptations. And I'll use adaptation as a very, in a very general way to refer to a biological response that increases survival and reproduction under a stress. And adaptations can take place on a wide range of time scales. As the x-axis shows, some acclimatizations can take place in seconds, hours, days, or months. Uh, we refer to those that are really fast and are reversible as acclimatizations. Another type of adaptation occurs if we grow up under a particular stress. Uh, that's an irreversible developmental adaptation. Over the course of generations and thousands of years, or hundreds of thousands of years, natural selection may result in an increase in allele frequency of alleles at, at, that uh, are uh, effective at counteracting the, uh, the environmental stress. Let's first look at ourselves. I'm assuming that everyone here is like me, and we've all been born and raised at low altitude. So we lowlanders, let's say we go to Pikes Peak or we go to Everest Base Camp. One, we acclimatize. We acclimatize at the level of oxygen exchange by increasing our breathing. And that you can see from this plot that shows over days at altitude, from before you go to altitude to up to about three weeks or a month at altitude, our ventilation increases enormously. And what does that do? It means that the number of liters of air that we're taking in, in a minute, is increased. That's how we get enough oxygen molecules, or how our bodies are responding to our acclimatizing so that we get enough oxygen molecules, at least at the beginning of the oxygen transport system. This is a, an acclimatization that is sustained for years at high altitude. After decades, it starts to fade and become blunted. We also acclimatize at the level of gas transport or oxygen transport by hemoglobin. And the way we do that is there is an increase in an erythropoietin that stimulates the production of more red blood cells containing more hemoglobin, more uh, hemoglobin molecules to carry oxygen. So again, now we're adapting at the level of gas transport. The higher the altitude, the higher the stress, the higher the hemoglobin concentration. And this also is an acclimatization response that lasts indefinitely until we return to low altitude, and then it, it is reversed. At the level of gas use or oxygen use, something very puzzling happens. And that is, at least for the first few weeks at altitude, our gas use, as measured by our basal metabolic rate, that's the minimum amount of uh, 
oxygen that's required to keep us alive by our heart beating and, uh, and breathing and so forth, that actually increases for the first couple of weeks at altitude. And then it, by, uh, by three weeks or four weeks, it has uh, returned to its pre-exposure level. So those are acclimatizations. And these are within the purview of all people. How is it that we mount those acclimatizations? Well, we do so because we have an oxygen homeostasis pathway consisting of genes and proteins, and uh, it's a very lovely pathway. The first element in the pathway is the oxygen sensor. And it is a protein that is coded for by a gene called Eglin-1. Second elements in the pathway are subunits of uh, proteins that are called hypoxia-inducible factors. And we have three of them, hypoxia-inducible factors 1, 2, and 3. Hypoxia-inducible factor 1 is called 1 because it has a particular uh, protein that is coded for by a gene called HIF-1. HIF for hypoxia-inducible factor 1A. HIF-2 has a subunit coded for by HIF-2A, and the same for HIF-3. These three hypoxia-inducible factors are transcription factors. And they, once the oxygen sensor senses that a cell is hypoxic, these hypoxia-inducible factors accumulate, and they induce the transcription of hundreds of target genes that increase gas exchange, increase gas transport, and uh, modify gas use. One of the target genes is erythropoietin. Why do we have this oxygen homeostasis pathway? Well, we have this oxygen homeostasis pathway because we're descended from ancestors that lived at a wide range of atmospheric oxygen content. The red line here shows the 21%. This is the number that we all learn in school, air contains 21% of oxygen. But it hasn't always. Along the x-axis here, you'll see millions of years. And we're showing that until about 650 million years ago, the Earth's atmosphere was composed of less than 5% oxygen. Around 600 million years ago, multicellular animals evolved. It was at this time that HIF-1-alpha also evolved. So we share this with all of our multicellular uh, animal uh, compatriots, if you will. A little bit later, around 550 million years ago, vertebrates arose, and HIF-2-alpha evolved. Again, we share this with all of our fellow vertebrates. At the time, oxygen concentration was only about 12%. Then we went through some periods of very high oxygen, low, and about 200 million years ago, mammals evolved. And with the evolution of mammals, we see the evolution of our third hypoxia-inducible factor, one. So the why question of why are we able to respond, 
uh, and acclimatize to high altitudes is uh, that we are descended from a series of ancestors that uh, evolved these elements of our oxygen homeostasis system. So that implies then, well, okay, we must all, we being all seven billion of us humans, respond in the same way to high altitude hypoxic stress. Let's look at that. And let's ask whether women like this uh, Tibetan Highlander living in the shadow of Mount Manaslu climatize in the same way we do. Let's look at gas exchange, and we're comparing here Tibetan and Andean Highlanders. And let's focus on the area above 3,500 meters. That is, the people, the samples of people who are under hypoxic stress. And you can see that in general, what has happened is that Tibetan Highlanders in the blue triangles have retained the acclimatization response of high breathing. The Andean Highlanders in general have not. They have blunted that response. With respect to gas transport, the opposite occurs. Andean Highlanders have essentially retained the acclimatization response, while Tibetan Highlanders have blunted that response. What about gas use? Here's a dissertation project for someone. We don't have very much information. The little information that we have is that both Andean and Tibetan Highlanders have normal, as expected, uh, oxygen use. So we don't see any evidence for population differences there. Well, now, in addition to having three types of adaptations, Andean, Tibetan, and Lowlander, we also have to think about acclimatizations, developmental adaptations, and genetic adaptations. So why do we think we, this contrast exists? Well, with uh, genomics and being able to examine whole genomes, we've discovered that the actual oxygen sensor gene, Eglin-1, has a number of variants. And that the variants in Eglin-1 that exist in Andean populations are different from those that exist in Tibetan populations and in turn, those are different from the variants that exist here at low altitude. The variants are not fixed, but they are a different, a very different allele frequencies. So this is one reason for uh, Andean Highlanders having the particular pattern of low ventilation, high, uh, hemog uh, high gas transport. Tibetans, on the other hand, not only have mutations in the oxygen sensor, they also have mutations in the HIF2-alpha element of hypoxia-inducible factor 2. And these are factors uh, of uh, Tibetan Highlanders that result in a dampened response to high-altitude hypoxia. And the particular association that is particularly strong is that with hemoglobin concentration. Homozygotes for the Tibetan form of HIF-2 have two grams of hemoglobin less than their compatriots who have the ancestral or low-altitude form of that same gene. So the reason, then, 
for this difference between Andean and Tibetan Highlanders relates to natural selection and local adaptation. We have Andean Highlanders and Tibetan Highlanders who have adapted to the same stress of high-altitude hypoxia, but on a local level with different mutations and different muta- and mutations in, at different loci. Now, what are the implications for medicine, whether we're at high altitude or low? You may be surprised to learn that something like 30% of the, the deaths in the U.S. are associated with hypoxia. They're not caused by hypoxia, but they're associated with hypoxia. And now that we understand that we have distinctive oxygen homeostasis pathways, genes, molecules, proteins, and responses, we can now look at those deaths that are associated with hypoxia and the diseases that precede them, and we can ask questions about, well, do certain variants in the oxygen homeostasis pathway make us more vulnerable? Or do they change uh, the prognosis of a disease associated with hypoxia? And does this give us opportunity for developing pharmacological interventions? And all of those are uh, in process. And so this is one way where uh, evolutionary medicine, looking at our evolutionary history, helps us understand and come up with new ways of looking at uh, causes and uh, factors associated with health and disease in our own population. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.